Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for all episodes, you can go to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Mike Dubow at Greylock Partners. Mike joined Greylock in 2018 and leads investments in commerce, marketplaces, and consumer more broadly. Previously, he led growth at Stitch Fix and Tilt and others and has created, scaled, and led growth teams from Series A through IPO across the span of businesses. Greylock Partners is one of the oldest venture capital firms, founded in 1965. Some of their investments include Facebook, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Instagram, Redfin, Pandora, and many, many more. It's quite an unbelievable track record, if you ask me. It was an absolute pleasure having Mike on, and I cannot wait to share this one with all of you. So without further ado, here's Mike. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's an absolute pleasure having you. How are you doing today? Doing well. Yeah, great to be here. Awesome. So what attracted you to leave consulting in order to pursue working on growth at startups? Yeah, sure. So this was a while back. So just to take a step back before that. So I did my undergrad uh, in industrial engineering back in Michigan. And you know, when I was finishing up, that was in 2007, uh, many of my I guess peers were either going to work in, you know, the automotive industry or more kind of manufacturing stuff in Detroit, or were moving out to um, to the Bay Area. At that time, I um, wanted to uh, stay around in Chicago, and many of the opportunities out there were, you know, either, you know big corporate or or kind of consulting gigs. I think what, what attracted me to consulting um, at that time was the diversity of work, and so I was always what I was trying to optimize for leaving, leaving school was just really trying to avoid any sense of routine in life and never really feeling bored. That was my biggest fear in entering the workforce. So, you know, th- this kind of pattern of work as a consultant, just starting at the base of a new learning curve every few weeks or every few months, um, working my way up it, then moving on to the next, like it really kept me on my toes. And so as far as consulting, it was actually like the diversity of work there. Um, at the same time, I was never really passionate about the clients I work for, which, you know, I ended up, being very happy in my time at Bain, uh, but I derive more of my satisfaction from the team and the intellectual stimulation of the work. And so when I was thinking about startups, I, I moved out to the Bay Area say, eight, nine years ago, and I was uh, you know, at uh, doing my grad school at Stanford at the time. And the, really, it was kind of a couple of years to just reflect on how I wanted to spend my time. And um, I viewed startups as a way to more closely align, you know, areas of interest or personal passion with how I spent my time. So, you know, at the time I entered, I started, I knew that food, restaurants, hospitality were a passion. And so I started spending time working in food startups, uh, spent time, you know, as first handful of people um, at a place called Kitchet, and then started going into group experiences, which kind of led me over to Tilt. And I I learned, you know... um, uh, during during that time that it was actually more about my passion for a given function and the people I was surrounded by versus the space. And so at that time, I started kind of doubling down on, um, on this thing that is now called growth. But I guess to get back to the question as far as what attracted me to leave consulting, it was really, you know, I viewed it as a way to more closely uh, align, you know, areas of interest to me with, with how I spent my time. 
And, um, and I do think actually, just as an aside, like many of the foundations from consulting actually are quite applicable to growth. I think it's important that you need to almost overcorrect from the things consulting teaches you to really not overthink and really focus more on execution. But at the same time, that analytical foundation, um, you know, designing functions around learning, all that stuff actually, um, I think really helped me out. Um, getting started working, you know, in startups as kind of early generalist roles. Uh, but I think it was important that I didn't stick around doing consulting for too long. Well, you've had quite the career when it comes to growing and scaling startups. I wanted to talk about two periods in your career when you were head of growth. At Tilt, the company was once valued at $375 million and in a couple of years sold to Airbnb for less than an ideal outcome. And at Stitch Fix, you were head of growth at a company that went public. What are some of the lessons learned when it comes to growth and venture capital in those two experiences since the companies had very different outcomes? Yeah, there uh, there was a lot there. I think I'm, I'm trying to think about where to, where to focus in on, but, um, but your, your classification is right. Like tilt was, uh, it was less than ideal and it's stitch fix in many ways. It was a much more successful outcome though. I think I've learned, you know, just as much, uh, at, at tilt, if not more than I did over at stitch fix. And so I think now, um, as I get to approach things from a somewhat higher level and, and kind of pull from both of those, I do find myself pulling from both of those equally. Um, and I think, you know, um, high level, I think, you know, I'll start with tilt. I think that was, so I joined there, um, pretty early on. I mean, the company had gone through YC and it had raised a series a, we, um, you know, we were growing call it 20% month on month at the time, but we didn't really have a clear understanding of how and why we were growing. And so a big part of my job there over the next three and a half years was, you know, first demystifying growth, um, uh, getting control, putting our hands on the levers, um, and then finding ways to really, you know, supercharge that. Um, and really, you know, it was gold around user growth there at stitch fix. It was, uh, similar actually. We, I joined much later there, but we had not had an explicit focus on growth, um, in the early days, which was actually a very good problem to have. We were, we were inventory constrained and, um, and actually the company, you know, did not raise much capital early on. And so it was always very disciplined on how to spend around growth and just always had the constraint of profitability from very early on, which was different than until. And, but anyway, at the time I joined, you know, my main task was to, you know, build, um, an in-house kind of growth team to really be able to uh, establish control and predictability over user acquisition, because, you know, in a couple of years we wanted to go public, um, and uh, and so different journeys, but I think the role ultimately was was the same. I think it tilt um, focused more on kind of product analytics, community that type of thing, and at Stitch Fix I was effectively running performance marketing. But I guess as far as lessons learned, you know, tilt biggest lesson learned at tilt was around focus. I think you know we we had the potential for three very promising businesses. I think and, and just you know to to describe those very quickly, you know, we had a consumer basically group payments product, think of it as a Venmo for groups that um, actually had really strong product market fit in international markets where there was not Venmo yet. And so like Canada, Australia, UK, I mean, the company was growing very quickly there. Um, uh, the, the problem, of course, is like, you know, margins on payments are super, super small. And like the scale you need for those businesses to work um, are massive or, you know, you need to be owned by someone else. And like in the case of Venmo, Anyway, that was one. Second, we had a commerce uh, kind of pre-orders API that we called Tilt Pro that was basically, you know, building a pre-orders widget into um, big notable kind of campaigns that you would have that you would have heard of that, you know, wanted to at that point, Kickstarter was a big kind of path for some of these brands. 
Um, and they would actually, you know, rather than handing over all your data to a third party or needing to kind of mold it to a Kickstarter campaign, our thesis was brands actually wanted to, you know, control their own pre-orders or crowdfunding experiences. And so we led some very notable launches on that. We're, we're making money on that. And then there was a third path, which was more of a hybrid, which was brands. We called it Tilt Commerce. It was brands participating in that same feed as uh, consumers were using to kind of pay pay one another and, and, you know, collect money around experiences. Um, and so you might have, you know, if you had a bunch of, you know, students uh, at University of Texas using Tilt to, you know, collect money for fundraisers or parties and stuff, you might have chubby shorts launching University of Texas shorts into the feed and just monetizing that way. And so those were all three very different product visions. And I think trying to tackle all three at once was detrimental. Um, I think, you know, the lesson I learned about being an entrepreneur there is that sometimes it's more about saying no than it is about saying yes. And, you know, we came up at a time where I think capital was was very easy to raise. You know, it was always kind of top line growth that was just attracting more investors to the company. And I think had we had more challenges fundraising or, or you know, were there more constraints in the company early on like Stitch Fix had, I think that discipline might have actually, you know, help the company say no to more and actually focus on one of those paths. And I, I do think constraints could breed resourcefulness. Uh, so that, that's more on the tilt side of things. Uh, and I kind of hinted at some of what I learned at, at Stitch Fix throughout that too. I mean, a lot of you know, the lessons at Stitch Fix were actually functional as well on actually what it takes to build, you know, an, an at scale, you know, growth function. I think at, at tilt, it, it was very much earlier stage and at Stitch Fix, it was, you know, kind of mid-stage through, through IPO and just the role of growth is very, very different in those. Um, but as far as how I think about business as an investor, I think the main thing at Stitch Fix, you know, as far as uh, brands go, uh, they really did not focus much on paid acquisition early on. And I think that foundation of having really strong word of mouth, focusing on the right demographic, and then layering on paid as an accelerant versus a crutch, um, that that was very healthy, um, you know, in my opinion, how brands should be approaching, you know, acquisition and growth in the early days. And that, uh, that you know, I think uh, help the company mitigate some of the addictions that we see in other brands that are kind of getting started nowadays. So focus on one product or service when it comes to growth or, or, or just a startup in general, rather than three that you had in a, in tilt. Uh, that's a big takeaway on the investor side. Uh, you did talk about how this has um, influenced you as an investor, but in the evaluation process, you know, there's still a huge abundance of capital. And it seems like when I look at uh, what series A's are and, and you know, e- even seed rounds, it seems like it's just like spiraled. It's it's just booming. So how do you how do you even think about the evaluation process currently in like today's age? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I will caveat up front and say like this really varies by business type. Um, I spend my time looking at a lot of consumer businesses, also marketplaces, and around commerce, I look more at infrastructure layer stuff. So effectively, B two B plays. Um, and, you know, in, in broad strokes, what I could say is I think one, like looking at retention, that's obviously the most important signal for durability of a product. Um, I would always, you know, spend time just understanding the retention cohorts first and foremost. And in general, you want to, one, you know, you want to make sure there's there's product market fit there, which generally means like the retention cohorts will asymptote somewhere above the x-axis and people are actually sticking with the product. Um, but you do want to see retention, uh, strong retention, and ideally it's getting better over time with cohorts. 
And, you know, you need to double click on that. And so if, if you see brands early on that are doing a bunch of stuff on paid marketing, really uh, understanding how downstream quality of users looks by channel or from paid versus organic is, is a really important, you know, lens to look through. So that, that's one is just around retention. Um, I think for me as a growth person, as I'm looking at consumer businesses, is there some sort of a, a growth loop that shows you know, potential to build real um, either, either scale effects or network effects into the business that will eventually help a business mitigate dependence on, again, the typical linear paid channels that end up decaying with scale. And so that, you know, growth loops is a whole separate topic. In general, I, I tend to gravitate towards businesses that have uh, not only loops, but also an understanding of them and how to how to really engineer them. Third, and I kind of hinted at this, but health of acquisition. So ideally, you want to see, you know, a low reliance on paid, or if there is, you know, paid marketing happening that, as I said earlier, it's more of an accelerant versus a crutch. I think it is important to have control over levers and, and paid, um, it, you know, it, it is quite straightforward to actually establish control there. But I do see businesses like, you know, that get started doing paid marketing and project cap going down, which is generally not the case. And so just really understanding, you know, health of acquisition, which doesn't mean no paid, but in general, it means there's something more going on than that. And, and I guess finally, and it's related to all those points, like you, you want to see strong word of mouth. So this is tied with strong retention. Like if people love the product, they want to tell their friends. But something I learned from Stitch Fix, you know, in the early days, we were really growing on the heels of word of mouth, which was really a function of focusing on a demographic that was underserved. And that's something I, I you know, I do look for is like referral propensity, word of mouth in, in businesses at, at the early stages. And so, you know, to your point, too much capital could could uh, lead businesses to focus on what is easy versus what is most durable, and that's you know um, something I try to try to understand. Sitchfish was profitable two years before the IPO, right? Yeah, it was it was so, sometime around then. Yeah, I um yeah, that that sounds about right. When should a startup shift their focus from growth and blitzscaling to profitability and sustainability? It's very much dependent on business type, um, and I think. You know, if you so much of it, I mean, and a plug for my partner Reed's <laughs> book on this, he will he will tell it far more eloquently and and in detail than than I would hear. I mean, I guess what I could say, I actually don't want to give like a one size fits all answer on this. I could just say, you know, there are circumstances by which blitzscaling is actually like the right thing to do. Uh, I just want to say that it's like that is most often not the case, actually. And and I think that's it kind of ties to a macro point on, you know, venture backable businesses overall as a very small percentage of like <laughs> businesses, great businesses being built out there. And I think some of what we're seeing right now is, you know, in my opinion, businesses that should not be venture scale um, taking on that kind of capital and uh, and then being forced to do things that are unnatural to them. And um, I, I will speak to, you know, a lot of things I have some visibility on from my time at Stitch Fix around maybe D2C brands. I mean, I think many of the most successful outcomes for founders are actually ones that did not raise a ton of venture money beyond, you know, beyond the seed. You know, I think there, there are some cases, and I mean, Stitch Fix is an example, you know, we, we did raise a few rounds of venture money and, um, and it worked well for us. Um, but I think had it been like a lot more raised, you know, the, the outcome might not have been as great for investors there. And you know, so um, so I think it's just very important. I think entrepreneurs should ask themselves, like, are they the type of business that actually should be raising, you know, I guess blitz capital? Um, and if that is the case, then go for it. That's a great point about founders really assessing if their business is venture backable, and if so, how much capital should be the, should they actually be fundraising? So, what made you decide to make the switch from being an operator to an investor, and what were some of the learnings that influenced you as as an investor? When I was doing my soul searching, um, 
you know, as I was thinking about my next thing after Stitch Fix, I mean, I always had venture as I had a bunch of friends doing it. I always had that in my kind of in my mind as something I would want to do. And, and the main reason why was that, I, you know, I always felt myself, I always had approached my career optimizing for learning. And even if you think about growth as a function, I mean, that function is um, designed, its main objective is to help companies accelerate their pace of learning. And so I, um, from a functional standpoint, I always like growth for that reason. I thought venture was going to be that like supercharged, um, you know, the surface area of learning. I mean, I might spend my time each day with five different founders that are in five totally different spaces that I just need to get up to speed on very quickly. And, um, and that, you know, um, th- that to me sounded like, you know, the most intellectually stimulating job I could imagine. And actually like, very rewarding and that I would always be at the base of a new learning curve. And that's to my early point at consulting, it's really like my own self-assessment of when I felt the most motivated at work. And, um, and also, you know, um, my best and sharpest self was when I was in those uh, circumstances. And so that, that was always kind of looming with me. Um, you know, I struggle with it a little bit because growth is, is also something functionally that I love. And, you know, I think there's not, there's not a ton of people that are doing that both early stage and late stage of companies right now. And I've, I've kind of found myself in a community that I really loved around growth people. And so I still, as an investor, I try to stay plugged into that. Uh, but I think part of what gave me, you know, some conviction on moving over is I was trying my hand at advising, helping out, you know, through, um, uh, like Y Combinator, um, some other funds, um, and, you know, starting to spend time with more than just one company at once. Um, I found that, you know, I was actually, you know, able to be helpful and also um, satisfied. Uh, it was just like a broader surface area of learning, like I said. So that was kind of some validation to actually move into it. I would say, you know, it's a job that I, um, when, when I was talking with the folks over at Greylock, you know, most of us here, I think all of us have been ex-operators, mainly in product capacities and culturally, and just, you know, how we approach conversations and how we look at companies internally, it really just resonated with me. And so I'm not sure it's a job I would have done, done anywhere, but I think our style of it here, how we partner with founders, um, you know, how we, how we uh, look at businesses internally, it just really kind of felt right. You know, I, I think as far as some of the learnings and difficulties like that, uh, that I would just say are still, uh, you know, in process of kind of calibrating to or adapting to. One is just like feedback cycles. I think growth is a function where, you know, you, your job is to shorten feedback loops and uh, and really just you know continue to learn uh, at, at a much ra- at a much more rapid pace. Um, you know, as your company scales and in, in venture, obviously the feedback loops are multi years. I think two is just being arm's length. So even though I said that you know, advising different companies and, and getting to work with founders on growth was uh, part of what made me move over. You know, it's, it's a little bit of the job here, but it's not the main job. And so you do need to know what are the right times and places to actually engage deeply. And then, you know, when that, uh, when that's called for, absolutely do so, but not, uh, it's kind of not the default. And then um, also like not filtering for businesses I'd want to work on growth for as primary investment criteria is another thing. And so, you know, it, it's definitely, um, it's definitely an, an adaptation, but, but I've, I've, you know, I've loved it so far. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing from, from how startups um, are approaching growth with these next wave of companies, considering that online customer acquisition costs are just becoming more and more expensive? I do look for a healthy foundation first of like strong word of mouth, some strong retention, you know, uh, before companies will start really stepping on the gas on um, on paid acquisition. I also look for ideally some product driven or you know non-paid uh, acquisition loop um, such that when they start doing paid marketing, it's more like I said, it's more of an accelerant. and uh, and so that's you know 
there's various ways of assessing that, but that's kind of what I look for when I meet with companies. And, you know, frankly, I do see businesses turning to pay channels too early nowadays, just given proliferation of capital um, and also the ease of running these channels. I mean, I started buying Facebook ads back in, you know, 2012. There was actually an opportunity to find arbitrage in those channels by savvy media buying. Nowadays, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, the, the art of making Facebook work is really, you know, great creative and great data pipelines versus, you know, being savvy with bidding and, and budgeting and, and you know, all that stuff. So, you know, I, I do think it, it's a it's a dangerous path for businesses to get down too early. Also, you know, uh, Bill Gurley wrote a really good piece a decade ago on, a, on, I think it was called like the dangerous seduction of the LTV cap formula. Like many, many businesses just think about this stuff like too linearly and, um, and it can inhibit creativity on finding other ways to grow. And so again, I think at Stitch Fix, you know, we, we, um, we ended up, doing a good amount of this stuff, although relative to, you know, and you could see, you know, marketing is a percent of sales, you know, public statements right now, it's still as much lower than many, many other, uh, many other peers. But, but our point of view there was, you know, there's not many businesses that could differentiate on doing this stuff. Um, we felt like, you know, our foundation of the company was one of personalization and data science. That was our core product there. And so applying that DNA over to running paid marketing, um, you know, you, we started to do some interesting things on, you know, offline channels, which are typically viewed as kind of unmeasured brand channels. We, we, we viewed them as growth performance channels, um, you know, that helped us find some uh, near-term, I think we were differentiated on how we approach those channels. You know, we were smart in building things like in-house, you know, in-house bidders and other kind of in-house tech around running these channels that ended up, you know, providing us some differentiation. Um, and so I think it was a, it was an interesting place to do the job. But again, I think many, um, the point is like, Performance rarely gets better with scale. And so it's just important for businesses to be realistic up front. And when they get down that path, kind of what's going to happen um, in, in a couple of years. And, uh, and I think I, you know, I have seen some businesses be, be unrealistic with that. The, the other last point, I guess, on, on paid marketing and, and marketing channels overall is that you know, they are changing quite quickly. And so, you know, at Stitch Fix, for instance, we were pretty early to buying podcast ads. And, and you know, there was a very inefficient channel at that point, inefficient from a like, market pricing standpoint. We were actually able to drive some good growth out of that. Now it's becoming more efficient, more programmatical. It's not there yet. Um, same with things like, you know, Remnant TV. And so channels are changing quickly. It's part of what makes the job really fun, keeps kind of heads of growth types and, and growth marketers on their toes. I think it, it can be having some insights and some unique ways of, of approaching those channels is generally good for companies. But again, I don't think it should be like the predominant thinking on growth for most consumer businesses. I sh should think they should be putting much more thought into um, how to drive growth from product and how to actually build loops. So when when should a founder make their first growth hire? And what are some keys or advice of founders when they're setting up a growth team? I get asked the question a lot on what is what is the first growth hire I should make. Usually what I'll try to get a sense for when I'm meeting with a company is like how well they understand why they're growing today and how they're growing, which generally is actually an analytics question. And like, has the company instrumented its products well? Do they have a growth model? Do they actually, you know, <laughs> have they... Uh, built a quantitative understanding of the levers of their business. If that's not the case, I sh I would say like, well, your first your first hire on that should be some sort of an analytics person. Um, whether or not you call them analytics or biz ops or you know whatever, I actually think those hires are a lot more leverage, such that you need fewer people and other functions later on. You know, I would caveat and say I actually don't think that needs to be like a PhD data scientist or anything like that. I think I've I've hired for these people out of teams like LinkedIn biz ops or 
you know, even people that were consultants and have done early stage startup things for a couple of years. Like I think those hires in the early days are actually more important than just throwing someone at, at, you know, doing, uh, you know, top of funnel user acquisition stuff. Um, so that's one. And I think to your other question on, you know, when they should make their first growth hire, you know, all I could say is like, don't do before there's product market fit. Like if you don't have that yet, you should just be focusing on building product and talking to users and, um, and finding product market fit. And there's various answers on, you know, how you know when you have it. In some cases, you could just completely feel it. You know, my my answer is more quantitative in that I think, again, uh, a retention curve that asymptotes, you know, well above the x-axis is kind of kind of my answer on that. Cool. Cool. Thank you. You know, in the early stage during the pitch, what do you like to see from founders when there isn't a lot of data? Some It depends on the stage you're investing in, right? So like we do a lot of Series A early investing. Um, we will do some later, some earlier, but so much of it in the early days actually is about the team and and their you know ultimate vision and insight they have around what they're trying to do and the fit, the fit between that founder and the product and the market that they're within. And so, so much of the investment, you know, actually comes down to that, you know, in general, still at the series A, there's generally some data. And so, you know, uh, I think I don't put much weight into like projected, you know, like five-year financials and, and, you know, LTV CAC ratios and things like that, but you could generally like find some sense, like what we ask is, is it working? And in general, that means like you could talk to, you know, some early cohorts of users um, uh, just to get a sense of like how passionately do they feel about the product? Is it, you know, is it inseparable from them? Is it, you know, what does the retention look like? Um, I think generally at Series A's, we have access to at least like that kind of data um, or, you know, calls to customers and things like that. Great. Thank you. What are what are some consumer trends and opportunities that you're most excited about? Yeah, you know, I um I end up looking at a lot of things that, you know, I technically look at consumer stuff here, but, uh, but overall, like the, the lines nowadays between consumer and I guess, you know, B2B are, are blurring a little bit. Um, for me, uh, you know, I spend my time around commerce related businesses. And so, like I said, from my time at Stitch Fix have, uh, some pretty good insights around, you know, different, different spaces within commerce. I would say we look more at Greylock. Uh, we try to look for businesses where there's some defensibility from their network effects or technology. And so, we, in general, will look more at like infrastructure layer investments in commerce versus uh, uh, versus investing directly into brands themselves. Um, which is not to say we wouldn't do that. It's just more, you know, more the exception versus the norm uh, as far as you know, a billion dollar fund like ours. And so, commerce infrastructure is a is a pretty ripe space right now. I think Shopify as a platform is just giving rise to a lot of interesting things. You know, I've looked at a number of things around logistics, reverse logistics. You know, international. You know, there's. Uh, there's a whole bunch there. And so that, that's kind of one theme. I think on marketplaces, for me, I've been spending a lot of time on B2B marketplaces nowadays. Um, and that's um, one of the investments made recently. And uh, and then I think three, this one's a little bit more micro, but per my earlier point on, you know, some of the, our, our kind of rush towards audio in the early days and podcasts in the earlier days at Stitch Fix, you know, I do believe, um, like many folks on the shift of consumer engagement over to audio and have spent a bunch of time trying to find different investable angles around that, you know, audio is a platform. And so, you know, that that's just a, a trend that I get excited about. But in general, for me, like, I think, so those are kind of, I guess, different spaces. I think, like I said, I, I, I look at investments from the eyes of a growth person. And so when I see a business where there's some uh, growth loop that I think shows um, an ability to create a great scale effect and potentially network effect, you know, generally a loop where uh, in marketplaces, say like supply acquisition drives demand acquisition, you could build more of a cross-site network effect there. Like all those things, all those dynamics get me more excited. And I try to not be dogmatic on, you know, specific space I'm hunting within. So what's one book 
that has impacted you personally and one book that has impacted you professionally? Ooh, well, I would actually, I'd give the same answer to both actually. Um, and this is one that I, uh, I find myself, I first read it when I was like, I spent, you know, six months or so backpacking around Southeast Asia after finishing up undergrad, starting work. And, uh, and I, I read the, actually, no, I read the book for the first time in high school, but I've gone back to it every few years with Siddhartha by Herman Hess that, uh, you know, there's a bunch of very, personal takeaways in that book to, you know, that resonate differently at different stages of life. Um, now having become a father recently, it's, you know, has a slightly different meaning, but, you know, I think to me, one of the things I gathered from it is like, you really need to experience fully immerse yourself in both extremes to find balance. You know, you kind of need to know both ends of the spectrum and know where the middle of the spectrum is. And, uh, and for me, both personally and from a career standpoint, like whatever I do, I try to fully immerse myself in and then come up from, come up for air maybe after a few years and kind of give myself some, some perspective on, you know, what I, what I just experienced. But I think, you know, if you're, if you're not fully immersed in something, I think you miss many of the benefits of what kind of that chapter of life could offer you. And so, you know, I think, um, to me, what that's meant is like being okay, falling out of balance in the near term in service of like longer term peace and fulfillment. Uh, it's kind of how I, how I think about that book. And so that that's, you know, um, impacted how I, how I travel, you know, how, how I try to carry myself at home. And as a father now, you know, how I, how I think about, you know, going all in on startups that I've worked for and, and, you know, not, not thinking about them as jobs, but actually like full on like primary focus of a, of a certain chapter of life. And, you know, and I think, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't want balance in my life and I'm all for, I think, you know, um, investments in like mental health and, um, and, definitely, you know, uh, just protecting overall health of people that are, are working a pretty insane startup lifestyle. Um, but, but I do think there's something to just, you know, really going all in and, um, and kind of, you know, also shift into the other extreme to get an experience of what things are like on that other side, um, as well. I know it sounds kind of like theoretical, but, but that book has had a b- big impact. I mean, it's pretty short, short read. So that's awesome. What's what's one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies? Yeah, I mean, I think again, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think just saying no, um, forcing discipline, and just being maniacally focused—it's kind of the most difficult part. I think nowadays we're in this kind of golden age of startups right now, where there's just so many opportunities all around us, and especially if you're based in the Bay Area, there's always going to be opportunities for you know networking events or. Um, or kind of, you know, other uh, other potential revenue streams or partnerships you could chase, and just opportunity um, that's you know always like quite literally knocking at your door. I think, you know, uh, to the point of what what I learned at, at Tilt mainly, you know, saying no is is far more difficult than saying yes. And I think just forcing discipline, whether that be around you know business model or around you know anything that's not in service of your north star metric or even on things like you know saying no to hires that are going to be good but not great in the early days just as you're thinking about building out your team um i think just really understanding how to say no is i think not only for founders but actually for you know for anyone who's trying to stay focused in today's day and age i think is um you know is important so i know that's a very it's a very generic kind of kind of thing but I just think, you know, I think far more companies have died from, you know, like, I guess, like indigestion and starvation, indigestion of, you know, saying yes to too many things. And, um, and it's something I actually experienced now as a, v, as a VC where, you know, in the, 
in the early days, I've probably been saying yes to a lot more meetings um, uh, as I'm kind of trying to build perspective and context. And I think over time, we'll probably be a, you know, a little bit more focused on how I spend my time here. So. No, I mean, I, I mean to be honest, that, that's actually the first uh, response uh, saying no uh, that, that I've received from that question from other investors. So that's uh, so why I appreciate it. it it reminds me of the book, uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller. Yeah, it's funny. That book, our, uh, <laughs> at the time, I was uh, my first like year or so at Tilt was crazy. And our, our CEO at the time, a good a good friend now, an amazing human, Brian Whistle, actually just put that book on my desk. He had told me to read it a couple of times. And I, didn't, I didn't follow up with it. And he put it on my desk one day. And then I brought it on when I was I took a two-week trip to Vietnam just for vacation and read it in like a day. And, uh, and then my 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 subsequent teams, uh, both at Tilt and Stitchfix, had to uh, listen to me harp on that book. You know, um, it's very simple. I mean, the book could kind of be summed up in like a sentence, which is, you know, in, in any facet of life, whether that be financial, health, you know, professional, whatever. There's generally one thing that you could be doing, such that anything else becomes either unnecessary um, or much easier. So, kind of look for that domino that's going to start that domino effect. Man, that. To your question on like what's what's a book that has changed me the most professionally, um, that uh, you know I probably could have answered that. So um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. That's awesome. I, I love that you made all your team members read it. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? That's a good question. I think you know first off, I want to I want to say that you know I am pretty new to this job, and so I don't want to. It feels like. This job takes, you know, not months, but like years to really kind of get the hang of. And, uh, and I'm, I'm still very much a student of it. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful to be in the room. A lot of my partners who have spent years and decades doing it that I get to learn from them on. One thing I can say in my experience so far, especially in this environment, is I think on both sides, there could be a little bit of this uh, kind of focus on speed and, and just sense of urgency on making things and deals happen fast. And I understand the reasons to do that. Like, obviously, if you're a founder fundraising can be distracting, but at the same time, you know, creating a false sense of urgency and getting things done can actually like hurt both sides. Um, and I think, you know, other, other, many others have said this, but, um, a good relationship between founder and lead investor, especially someone who's taken, going to join your board, like that should feel like a marriage. I mean, ideally it's going to be a decade long relationship. And so, you know, if that's happening over the course of a handful of, uh, or a few transactional meetings, like that's obviously not ideal. And so, just like both sides, you know, slowing down a little bit, you know, would, I think, I don't think it's actually a self-serving thing for VCs to say. I think it's actually on, on both sides of a benefit founders and investors alike um, to really find the right match. So that that's one. I would say like the, another piece, just as someone who's from Chicago and spent a lot of my life, you know, I've been in the Bay Area for a while, but I do think, you know, one observation is that it can be a little bit of a herd mentality in some places. And, you know, people are generally deriving signal from very similar places. And that, that, that actually, in, in many ways, can be actual signal that people should pay attention to. At the same time, it could cause a little bit of tunnel vision on folks, you know, not really looking for opportunities outside of our own kind of either backyard, literally or figuratively. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think people being uh, more open to investing in other other startup ecosystems and actually creating networks outside of the Bay Area or outside of, you know, areas that types of businesses that, you know, we, we have um, seen be successful in the past, you know, I think um, the space is probably right for more more original thinking on that. Right. No, that makes absolute sense. Great. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Fun chatting with you. And there you have it. It was an absolute pleasure having Mike on the podcast, and I really appreciate him taking the time and hearing his thoughts about growth and startups. To keep up to date with Mike, you can follow him on Twitter at mdubo. That will also be located in the show notes. 
if you enjoyed the episode, which if you're still listening, I hope you have, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app. You're also welcome to check out theconsumervc.com for all episodes. And if you want to follow along behind the scenes, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. Our final episode of the year will, will be this Thursday. Then we will be taking a two-week break starting the week of December 23rd for the holidays. Thanks for tuning in.